every American citizen must have an equal right to vote. The administration of elections is primarily a state and local responsibility. Whether you voted for the very first time or waited in line for a very long time, by the way, we have to fix that. Welcome to High Turnout Wide Margins. This is Brianna Lennon. I'm the county clerk in Boone County, Missouri. And with me is my co-host. Eric Fay, Director of Elections in St. Louis County. And today we're really excited to have Jennifer Morrell, who is a former local election authority and is now a partner at the Elections Group. And we're going to be talking about all sorts of fun elections things and what she's been working on. So thank you for joining us today. It's really exciting to be here. Thanks for having me. So our first question is always, how did you end up working in elections and taking the pathway you did in your career? Sure. Well, we actually have to step back a little bit from that because I had the opportunity to spend about four years serving in the Air Force. And I think that sort of planted this bug for doing something where I was providing service to my community, but also a part of something bigger than myself. And then fast forward a few years, we were at our last duty assignment. Uh, We'd just been assigned to Hill Air Force Base in Utah. And I really, uh, I was no longer serving in the community. And so I was feeling that bug again. I wanted to be involved. And so I ran for city council uh, in the small municipality that we lived in and I lost. And then a few years later, I decided to try again. Uh, I learned a few things about campaigning and I ran and about three days before the election. So on a a Friday uh, prior to uh, Tuesday's election day, the mayor actually came to my house, the mayor of the city and explained to me uh, that we had a problem. The person that was responsible for running the election had quit. Uh, Nobody was sure uh, what had been planned or hadn't or how the election was going to be um, carried out. And they heard that I was good at solving problems and would I be interested in running Tuesday's election. (laughs) And so I spent the next couple of days just calling everybody uh, that I could, reading all of the statutes and laws. And in the course of that, realized rather quickly that I had to withdraw myself as a candidate if I was also going to be uh, responsible for the election. And I did, Uh, it wasn't pretty, but we got through it. I learned some things, I was immediately hooked. I think I, I thought to myself, this is just a fascinating process. And I think we can do better. <laughs> uh, there were definitely some things that um, I saw that could be improved upon. And so long story short, they kept me on as the city clerk. I'd be there for a couple of years. Like most small uh, municipalities, I did a lot of other things besides running elections. And then I found myself as the director of elections in Weaver County, uh, Utah. I worked for Ricky Hatch, who I know has been on your show. And I spent a few years there. Again, gave me that experience of a mid-sized county but with limited resources. So I really feel for those jurisdictions. We had about 125,000 voters, uh, but only four full-time staff. So we, everybody did every, a little bit of everything. I was really lucky there. I had kind of a, a big leash to try a lot of things and to innovate. And we ran the first all-male election in Utah, probably an idea that was a little early <laughs> for its time, but certainly planted some seeds there. But I was really intrigued about that, about um, moving more towards vote centers. And so I was 
drawn um, to Colorado. Uh, I was excited to see what they were, what was happening there. And in 2015, became the deputy of elections and recording in Arapahoe County, Colorado. Uh, I worked alongside Matt Crane, who again also has been on this program. So it's such a small world. And that was really just a remarkable experience. In Arapahoe, we have just under 400,000 voters. So again, just kind of continuing to understand like the challenges and the benefits of different sized jurisdictions and, and what that means has been really instrumental in the work that I do now. Two of the things there uh, that I loved that we, we did that has sort of stayed with me and sort of pushed me into the avenues that I'm, I'm, I'm now sort of focused on. One was in 2016, uh, folks will remember we were starting to see some of that mis and disinformation start to rise up and challenges to security and outcomes of our election. And so taking great ideas from colleagues all over, because that's what we do in election administration is we share and copy, develop some ballot life cycle, sort of infographic talking points that really became core. They were tied to our standard operating procedures. We use them for tours. Uh, we use them to help inform observers and poll watchers, really help people, um, we hoped, feel more confident in what they were seeing. And then uh, the final thing there, uh, obviously uh, risk limiting audits played a big role in the last year that I was in Colorado. I will admit this, I don't know that I've admitted this publicly, but I initially was not sold on the idea. I thought it sounded like something that was um, nice on paper, but maybe not something that could be a reality or put into practice. But like most things we do in election administration, the law sort of forced me to have to do that. And I decided if we were going to do that, we were going to do that really well. And I actually came away, obviously, a huge fan and now you know, an evangelist, I guess, uh, is the word for RLAs, not just because of um, the way that they help us sort of validate the outcome of our election, but actually all of the backend work that goes into organizing and storing, cataloging, and focusing on chain of custody and ballot reconciliation, those sorts of things that are foundational to a good audit. I saw the way that they were able to kind of transform some of the work that we were doing. So that led me, I guess, to where I'm at now, which was been a few years sort of talking about RLAs and instructing folks on how that works. And now with the elections group, we've sort of broadened that work to encompass uh, quite, a, quite a few more things than just post-election audits. I know that the reason we uh, asked you to be a guest on here was to talk about some of your work uh, more recently, post-November 2020, and the issues around threats to a, a local election officials and what they can do to protect themselves. Can you fill everybody in on you know, what you've been doing in that regard? Yeah, we, we never saw ourselves as really being the subject matter experts in that area. And yet as we were supporting different jurisdictions and we were receiving um, calls from folks, uh, either to ask for help or just sharing uh, what was happening in their office, we sort of had this growing sense of alarm about the number of threats, whether they were indirect via voicemail or email messaging, that sort of thing, or you know, direct threats where folks were showing up at um, election offices or copying license plates from staff members in parking lots, that sort of thing. 
And we didn't see anybody really addressing that. And I think the, the we heard sort of two themes. One was, how can I make sure my information isn't out there? I don't want people to know where I live or who my kids are or you know where they go to school. And the second part was, I just don't feel like I'm getting the response I need from law enforcement. So uh, like most things, we just decided, you know what, we're going to put something out. And most likely when we do that, somebody else will take it and they'll make it better. So we collaborated with a group that had done a lot of work in the online environment. So keeping people safe online. And really it's a couple of key things. It's first taking the time to sort of understand what information is out there about you, whether it's a, a something as simple as a Google search or we developed a document called Protecting Election Officials from Digital Threats. And there are some other tools that it outlines that can be used as well. But it's, it's really helpful for anybody sort of thinking about this to know uh, what accounts do I have? You know, if I search my name, can I find my uh, my home address, my phone numbers, my date of birth? Uh, do I have old accounts that I forgot about that are still open? And which of those accounts, especially when we're talking about social media, are public or private? So just sort of doing some investigative work on your own to understand your own risk level. Uh, we recognize that certainly some folks that are um, in running elections have a sort of higher public profile than others, right? So there are some of you that are elected and just by nature of your job, your, your name is out front, but there are also staff members that they signed up just to do a job and not to be known publicly that also experience some of that threat. And so it's sort of a way to understand uh, what's out there. And, and then the second part is thinking about how to remove some of that information. So doxing obviously was a big part of the playbook for the folks that were doing the threatening and harassing, posting information about individuals. And so uh, the second recommendation is just removing as much of that public information as you feel comfortable with. One of the things that we found ironic was uh, election officials are responsible for voter registration data, uh, which has a lot of uh, personal information. And yet in many states and jurisdictions, you don't have the ability to mask or redact your own information. There are certainly different laws, different classes of people that can't ask for that, but election officials haven't until recently really been considered as part of that protected class, you know, like judges or district attorneys or people that are in abusive relationships or things like that, where they need to hide their information. And then the final part of that is just thinking about if you do find yourself at the tail end of those threats, kind of how to handle that situation. So that, that was one part of it. And the second part was the, the local law enforcement and we just sat down and talked to members of our team, as well as the other election officials to just try to think about, you know, what, when it comes to sort of collaborating, what are you doing? How are you including law enforcement? Not just in sort of the conversations we've had in the past about protecting polling locations and electioneering, but actually um, ensuring that your person and your physical building are safe. But more importantly, when you do get those threats, who do you communicate them to? How do you communicate them? What sort of information do they want you collecting? And what can you as the election official expect in terms of response? And I think for a lot of jurisdictions, that might be a new conversation that they're just having. And our, our guess is it's probably a bigger conversation. So it may start with your local law enforcement unit, but most likely 
it's something that you may want to have a discussion with your state association or in collaboration with your secretary of state or you know if you have sort of regional groups within your state where you can sort of harness that collective power and, and sort of help state and local law enforcement understand this isn't just a single county problem but it's a statewide issue and we hope that by you know putting these out and sort of talking about them we can push the conversation to the federal level. And we're seeing that, you know, we're, we're seeing some response now, right, from DHS and certainly lots of advocacy groups now talking about how to better protect election administrators and election officials. So one thing that I've been curious about, because this is something that came up a lot, well, there seems to me to be constitutional questions of putting armed guards at your office. And, you know, they, the voters themselves shouldn't be intimidated at the expense of having to protect the office and trying to determine whether threats are legitimate or not, if there is going to be something that you need to protect yourself against. How has that come up in discussions? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, it's one we touch on, but again, we certainly aren't the authority there. We simply just address it that there's a conflict there, right? It, uh, inviting law enforcement presence of any sort of uh, size or scale could in fact uh, be seen as intimidation by you know, anybody, but definitely in particular with particular groups or in particular neighborhoods or polling locations or, or areas. And so I don't know, Brianna, that I have an, an answer there. Uh, you know, we, we flagged it in the document as something that warranted sort of further conversation about how that should work, but I think it's definitely something we need to surface and talk more about. I'm curious what kind of response you've heard so far from election officials to what you put out. I, I guess like a bit mixed. I think the easy answer would be, I'm just gonna take everything that has to do with me and my office out of the public sphere and that's how I'll be safe. And that's not reality, right? We have all of this information about the work we do, about who we are, that just by the, the nature of the work has, has to be out there. So you almost have to look at it with sort of two trains of thought, like how to protect my office and my myself in a professional sense, and then how to protect myself personally. Uh, I think there's a little bit of uncertainty of, about how effective some of those measures will be. So when we sort of lay out uh, that, you know, that's been some of the response we've received is we kind of lay out here are different tools or different uh, websites and things that can help you remove this information. Uh, you know, some of the response has been, is, can you really, like, is it really worth, this is a lot of uh, kind of time and effort to do this. Is it really going to be worthwhile? Because it feels like inevitably there's going to be something out there about me that I don't find or, or isolate. I think um, in terms of a, a law enforcement piece, uh, that's, you know, we've received really positive response from that. Just again, as folks are starting to sort of take a collective breath from 2020 and, and turn towards what's next. This is certainly a part of that sort of planning, contingency planning, that you know they're going to include some of this as they start to think about those conversations, not just in the response, but also even just in the physical planning, the physical assessments of, say, central count facilities or things like that, 
And where is it useful to have somebody outside of the office, um, which may or may not be law enforcement. It could be one of the CISA PSAs or someone, right, come in and help uh, with that skill set, sort of do a walkthrough looking for physical vulnerabilities. Um, that's been pretty fairly positive. And then, you know, I, I will just add as part of the collaboration that we did with this group, we sort of offered up to anyone interested in that, that we're really, you know, dealing with an, an unusual, I don't even know if that's the right word, an unusual amount of threats. That just sounds so weird. One threat is too many. We have been uh, sort of sponsoring them to have some more intensive sort of online cleaning, I guess, with an organization that specializes in that. So, and, and sadly, we've had a handful of takers, you know, reach out to us and say, I'm, I'm just so concerned. I'd love to have some professional help here. In terms of professional help, because I know you communicate with election officials all across the country. Have you come across anybody who's thinking about like budgeting for that kind of contingency in the future or having like a retainer for, <laughs> you know, that kind of service? I don't even know if that exists. I have not, actually. That's really interesting. Um, we've certainly seen people budget for security, like non-law enforcement security companies to, whether, whether that's watching standing guard over drop boxes or, again, election facilities. I remember after 2016, there was a lot of talk about communications, like crisis communications, you know, if uh, your voter database is compromised somehow, you know, how do you communicate that to the public? And it almost seems to me an extension of kind of your, your crisis planning and crisis communication, what you do in case of threats. Yeah, I think so. I, you know, it's, it's definitely going to have to take both parts, right? That sort of proactive approach, like you're talking about, where you're sort of integrating some of that into your crisis comms plan. And also sort of the broader, as we talk about really nailing down that documentation, you know, the standard operating procedures, the tests, the audits, all the things that you do to sort of help combat the mis and disinformation. So I think that that's definitely one element. And then this sort of defensive part, this is where I think, again, as a community and in collaboration with legislators and others need to really think about laws like some states have that protect judges, that protect um, certain individuals in uh, public service to extend that to election administrators, not only to provide that sort of protection, allowing them to redact some of that information from public records, but also comes with those same criminal penalties you know, in the event that those threats do escalate, I, I think that sort of sends a sign that this sort of um, activity is not going to be tolerated. And, and we absolutely have to do that. And it's, we need our, we need our state of federal leaders uh, to take that seriously, I think, and, and figure out a way to make that happen. Have you seen this extend to election judges and poll workers who absolutely, I mean, there's, a lot of us, especially in smaller communities, everyone knows where we live anyway. So even if we protected it on public documents, it wouldn't really make a difference. But election judges are not signing up for that type of exposure. So there was a good story documented uh, either in the Brennan Center report or the uh, report that just came out from the California Voter Foundation around intimidation. 
um, about a, a poll worker team that were returning ballots or election material to the main office that were followed um, and then uh, attempted to be ran off the road. Um, so I, you know, that's the only story that comes to mind. Um, we certainly saw in Georgia, uh, lower level line staff being targeted. And I think that's, I think you're right, Brianna, that's what's concerning is when you have um, individuals who, again, they didn't sign up for that. You know, unlike you, you take a little bit of that risk, right, by nature of your, your role. You know, they didn't sign up for that. They didn't sign up for their information and their identity to be out there um, in the public sphere. So, and, you know, and I think the other thing that we, we need to talk about is just the impact that this has, not just on the morale or on, you know, the sort of mental health of your staff, but in some ways, we saw some of these threats born out of just human mistakes that happened in some offices or a misunderstanding, right, of a process that could be easily explained, but somebody saw it on camera or heard about it somehow and, and turned it into something that it wasn't. And I think uh, this sort of the, the threats and harassment are have the potential to do exactly what they're they're trying to do, which is to keep folks from being more transparent, from um, you know, sharing when they do see a mistake or or an issue happens, being transparent about that, being public about that so they can be rectified. Now you've got this sort of shadow of if I say something, and I'm I'm talking again more uh, thinking about poll workers or or line level staff. If I say something, is that going to open up? What is that going to open me up to, or what is that going to expose me to? So, again, I don't know that I have an answer there, but you know we we certainly saw that and identified that as sort of a secondary problem to this threatening, harassing behavior that was that's been happening. You know, from what you put out publicly or otherwise, are there certain key things you like election officials to take away from what you've learned and what you've put out? Yeah, and it, it's, I'm going to say something that you've already probably had other people on your podcast share and isn't going to be earth shattering at all. <laughs> but documenting everything you do is so, so vital uh, now more than ever. And I think back to uh, some of the just like amazing, you know, veteran staff that I got to work with where they had just years of knowledge up in their head. And, and we see, we've seen this in just about every election office we go into, but no one has taken the time to put all of that down on paper. And because that individual knows that job inside and out, it's worked okay. Um, so that, that sort of documentation part is critical for a lot of reasons. One, it's really the only way that you ensure consistency, that you avoid really critical mistakes from happening. And as I mentioned earlier, having those standard operating procedures, having those checklists, having those chain of custody logs, all of those things available help you then when you're either communicating to inform or communicating in a crisis or communicating in response to founded or unfounded allegations. Those procedures also then become sort of the billing block for my favorite thing, which is, you know, tests and audits where you have the opportunity, not just post-election, right, to ensure that the equipment was operating accurately, but just to further sort of cement uh, the fact that you did run a, a secure and fair election, you can use those to do informal compliance audits, you know, and other checks, 
pre-election, during the election, post-election. I think it just really builds on the credibility of your your office and your staff. And then, you know, again, the tough part is using all of that to tell your story in a way that lets people know you ran a trustworthy election. We're not gonna, we've all learned that now. Unfortunately, we're not going to win over everybody. And uh, I'll be the first to say audits isn't the be all end all. It's just one sort of layer in this piece of building trustworthy elections. Um, so start by, you know, if I could give one piece of advice and I do this every time I walk into an office to do an assessment or to help is, walk through with your, on your own or with your staff, whatever size of office you have, walk through all of your processes from the time the voter registration application arrives in your office until those ballots are stored and find out where you actually do have documentation available, where there are gaps and, and have folks actually walk through that and ensure it's current. You know, sometimes we'll, I'll see jurisdictions that say, yeah, we've got all of our procedures documented, but nobody's actually walked through them in years. And we find out that new technologies have been implemented or laws have changed or something and they just haven't been updated. So it's the cheapest, easiest thing you can do. It's time consuming. And I, I think more than anything, my work over the last year has helped me see that one of the biggest needs that our community has is a lack of human resources, meaning offices that are understaffed or not staffed with people that have all of the skills that they need. And I think that's something we're fighting for every day for uh, investment in, in that. I think, I think that's gonna be really important over the next four to eight years. I am curious, you've worked in so many places and you have a wealth of experience from all of those different places. Knowing everything you know now and living through the 2020 election do you have any any sense of if 2022 is going to be worse, if 2022 is going to be the same, if we should all be hiding under our desks? <laughs> um, I'll answer that and then I'll share some some wisdom. I, I think it's going to be worse. You know, I, th- I think there's sort of a, a playbook forming and I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be worse. I think the this mistis and malinformation that we're seeing is only going to grow as as individuals are starting to understand how to use it to leverage what it is that they're trying to accomplish i think everybody absolutely needs to not relax in that sense and i still just am in awe of the remarkable remarkable job uh, that state and local officials did last year. In fact, I struggled to talk about it without feeling um, emotional um, because I, you know, I watch people, I, I just watch these um, incredible moments of courage uh, when folks were exhausted and, you know, uh, emotionally just beat down, stand back up again and, and keep doing the work. And it was remarkable, but I think we we can't, sit on our laurels, I think we are gonna have to continue to sort of tighten up. And, you know, one of the things we saw, you know, there was this real focus on transparency and being open about your processes and sharing those. And, you know, I mentioned at the beginning of the episode about our ballot lifecycle chart and all of that. We certainly saw folks um, embrace that. 
which was amazing, right? We got to have this sort of bird's eye view of ballot processing in jurisdictions all across the country. Unfortunately, you know, there were incidents where folks used that to try to prove that um, something nefarious happened or, uh, you know, there was, you know, some sort of, you know, issue or fraud that was perpetrated. And I think that's going to be one of the challenges. Um, you know, I, I can think of a specific incident in a jurisdiction around ballot duplication, something we all um, in election administration, we know how it works. We know why we do it. We know who's doing it. We, the protocols, uh, unlike most of what we do that differs from state to state, the protocols are pretty much standard across the 50 states. But somebody external saw that on a live feed and interpreted it to be uh, you know, something nefarious. So I think, I think we're gonna have to really wrestle with that. And um, you know, it, more than ever, we need each other. Um, I think that's the biggest takeaway I have from my whatever 10, 12 years in um, elections now is it's really about relationships and networking and collaborating both within our state organizations across, uh, you know, nationally uh, with, you know, our nonprofit partners, everybody, you know, we, we all need everybody right now. There's just, this is not the time for egos or to be siloed or uh, to worry about who's taking credit. Uh, this is the time to be extending help uh, wherever we can and, and accepting that help. Well, here's hoping. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I'm in a really unique position where I get to work with a lot of former local election officials and we get to build really cool products and we do those all based on needs. So if somebody's listening and they uh, think they have a need for something, whether it's standard operating procedure or some other guideline or tool, uh, reach out because we, we, it's just really exciting to be able to uh, think about some of those things and, and help in that way. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening to High Turnout, Wide Margins. A big thanks to Jennifer Morell for being our guest today and for all the important work she's been doing lately. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you listen to another episode of High Turnout, Wide Margins.